Hi, I'm Helen Adiosum, co-founder and CEO of Care Academy. Stick around to hear our mission and values. Welcome to Mission and Values, a backstage capital podcast about remarkable startup cultures led by underrepresented founders. I'm your host, Brian Landers. Typically on the show, we feature companies with 10 or more employees to learn more about how their internal culture works. Today, we're going to do something a bit different and learn more about a startup just in the early stages of growth and culture formation and hear the story behind their mission. My guest today is Helen Adiosin, the co-founder and CEO of Care Academy. For full disclosure, Backstage Capital is an investor in Care Academy. Welcome to the show, Helen. Hi. Hi, Brian. How are you? I'm great. Thanks. And I'm so excited to chat with you today. Thanks so much for having me on the show. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. And where are we speaking to you from today? Yeah. So we are based in Boston and I am in a conference room uh, sitting here uh, in our CIC office space in Boston, Massachusetts. Cool. Now, we're going to get deeper into it later, but can you tell us briefly, what is Care Academy? Yeah, so Care Academy is an online platform where caregivers of older adults can get professional development. Uh, They get certified, and that helps them provide excellent care. Got it. Now, this show is all about the why behind the startup, you know, the mission that keeps everyone on your team aligned and driving forward toward a shared goal. So what is the mission of Care Academy? Yeah, The mission of Care Academy is to make sure that all caregivers have access to an excellent education so that they can provide excellent care. That's great. Now, I'd love to look into the past for just a moment, if we can, to learn more about your life story and to discover where this mission came from and how you got here. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes future signs of entrepreneurship pop up in early childhood. So where did you grow up and what were you like as a kid? I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. My family's from Nigeria. And being the child of two immigrant parents, I was very curious. And um, because they were very hungry and very aspirational, I was also very aspirational as well. Do you have any stories from your childhood about your parents? Yes. (laughs) That maybe had some relevance to your (laughs) becoming an entrepreneur? Yes, there are lots of stories. One that I like to tell, I think it's a testament to the kind of people my parents are as much as it started shaping what I utmostly believe is important to what makes great entrepreneurs. So growing up, I was around 14 and was really excited. I'd gotten my first real job other than, you know, babysitting. I was working in a, like a thrift store. It was amazing getting to be humbled by meeting, you know, immigrant families who were using this as a means to get clothes and to shop but I am to this day terrible at math and, you know, get really nervous sort of handling cash. But I've been a cashier many times since then, but it was my first cashiering job. And, you know, in cashiering, you have um, basically overages, underages, and you have to do a reconcile at the end of the day. And this thrift store, because it was living to its mission, could not have or really bear any overages, right? Because that means somebody was overcharged. One day I had a $4 overage. Most places will tolerate at least like $10. This thrift store was not having it. And so I was fired from my first job and I was mortified, really embarrassed. And just, I mean, it actually makes me shiver to this day. 
And I, I cried for a day or two and was just really upset. And uh, my dad came in and what he said was, look, you could sit here and you can cry, but I just went to Home Depot, just bought a mower, go out and go mow the lawn, get out and go do something, make yourself useful. So I went out, mowed the lawn and I uh, talked to my dad later that evening. I'm thinking, you know, because I don't have anything to do and it's too late to get a job, can I use the lawn mower? So he handed me a $5 bill and said, here's your first investment for gas. I went out in the hot sun. I live in Georgia, so the summers are brutal, but I was determined to really prove something. Got a little tank of gas and just cold knocked on neighbors' doors and started mowing lawns. And uh, at the end of the week, made about $400. Whoa. Yeah, which is great, you know, because it was probably as much as I'd make at the thrift store as well. And I did that the entire summer and wrote an article about it, which, you know, later got picked up. And that was a lesson that I've kept for the rest of my life because I haven't had a meaningful experience where I succeeded, where I didn't fail at first. And in all of those failures, I come back to that story because it was so pivotal for me to learn early on. I'm crying a little bit because um, my dad um, is such a great person. Um, I need a call when I <laughs> finish up. But it was really important for me to see that, you know, there's a bright side to the, you know, crappy things that happen in life. And especially in entrepreneurship, you're going to have a lot of down. So keeping the mission and keeping, you know, your mind open to the possibilities that still exist, just a willingness to persist and be dogged is so critical um, in the hard times. And that was my first lesson in learning that. Oh, that was so wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that, Helen. No, thanks. So you earned a bachelor's degree in political science and Arabic studies mm-hmm. from Notre Dame. Yes. I learned sort of online that you speak at least four languages, English, Arabic, Spanish, and Yoruba. Yeah. Where did this interest in languages come from? You know, why did you decide to study that? Uh, I was better at languages. Again, <laughs> it wasn't math. There's a continuing and running theme in my life. I love languages. I love communicating with people. I love storytelling and you know, those are all the languages in which I've heard and have been interested in stories. And so my interest in learning those languages came from wanting to hear more about the stories and being able to attempt to communicate with people. I'm not the best at speaking all of those, but I have a a natural tendency and an affinity just to talk with people and communicate with people. And, you know, language is obviously the fastest way to to break down barriers. Mm -hmm. And how did you decide after that, you went on to teach ninth grade English? Is that correct? Yes, I did. I was supposed to be a military officer. I should have said that too. So that's the Arabic piece. So I graduated high school uh, a couple years after 9-11. And then also this upsurge of folks thinking about uh, military careers. And my dad was uh, really adamant about service. And this idea that, you know, we've gotten so much from America and both my parents are are really big into giving back. And so decided, okay, I'm going to go into the military. And uh, the first year I was quickly, in fact, it's the only thing that I've ever quit. And that is like the thing in my belt. And I go back to it and wonder about how different my life may have been. And so I left ROTC, but was really interested in this idea of being challenged and being pushed and giving back in some way. You know, got a call from the Obama campaign um, because I was a college Dems president on my campus. 
decided not to pursue that because I was walking down our liberal arts hallway and I saw a poster with a bright, smiling, vivacious woman. There was a little tagline on top of the poster that said, in two years, you won't even recognize the person who you will become. And I think anybody who's done TFA actually knows what I'm talking about. What is TFA? TFA's Teach for America um, started by Wendy Kopp about, uh, I want to say at this point, 30 years ago, based on her senior thesis in addressing the systemic inequalities that exist in schools, especially schools that are low income and are uh, majority people of color. And so I saw this poster. I'd heard about Teach for America. I'd also gotten calls from someone who was recruiting at Teach for America. Jack, I'll never forget him. Mm-hmm. What's up, Jack? Shout out. Yay, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> And so decided to apply and found out that I was accepted as part of the core. I had the choice of five cities. Uh, Teach for America sent me back home. So I was really excited about that. You know, what did you learn during that time that helped set the stage for your future startups? My first and second year of teaching, my kids taught me more than I think I taught them. <laughs> uh, there are 130 kids who need a variety of different things. And some of them may come from disadvantaged backgrounds, some may not. Some of them are way above grade level, some are not. So thinking through that dynamic was something that I struggled to wrap my hands around my first year. And everyone always says the first year of teaching can be really rough. I was coming into a department with a really amazing chairperson and a really amazing cadre of teachers a lot of what I ended up doing my first and second years was learning how to teach through them. Being in a place as an entrepreneur, I think you're always learning. And it's being not ashamed to say, I don't know all the answers, but you know, damned if I'm not going to find out. And being hungry after the problem, the challenges, as opposed to sort of settling into a solution. My problem also my first year was I was so eager to try different things that I didn't call back to who I was and really sort of come up with a framework that rooted and anchored my classroom. And because of that, we struggled, right? And I think that comes into play today when we're talking about culture building and vision building and value building for the startup. I think you have to bring in the entire team, but CEOs and founders have to lead from the front in their own way. And that experience my first year left an indelible mark on what I believe about leadership. That is wonderful. Yeah. And it shows you too the value of a great teacher. Yeah. How much impact that can have. Yes, it really does. Certainly relevant to Care Academy. Yes. After teaching for a stint there, you were off to Harvard. Yeah. You earned a master's degree in education policy and management. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yes. Why did you decide to go back to school? And do you feel like that helped you prepare for what you do today? Absolutely. I had got into an organization that I Um, I'm immensely proud of having worked, but felt very unanchored, you know, in terms of my own experience and what that meant. And I saw that value in the Harvard Graduate School of Education and that it was going to be, you know, sort of a year long term so that I was, you know, basically feeling forged by the fire, forced to seek out experiences alongside the classroom experiences that I was getting and be proactive about what I wanted to be and who I wanted to be after the program. And I knew on some level I wanted to delve into entrepreneurship. I wanted to be in something that was just getting off the ground. I didn't imagine that would be my thing getting <laughs> off the ground. Um, I was in an MIT class. Shout out to Yost Bonson, who teaches the development ventures class at MIT. 
You know, I told him a number of times, but I don't know if you realize this, but the shape that Care Academy later took in that earlier trajectory was born out of that class. I was taking classes that were informing what Care Academy was. Um, the policy classes were definitely teaching me about the problem. I'm a policy person at heart, so I'm hungry after problems. And Yost's class was essentially, you know, there was no homework. There's no reading. There's none of that. It was all experiential. So it was basically the call to action was in one semester, think of an idea, recruit your classmates as teammates and launch this idea give it shape by the end of the year. And so we spent weeks just organizing teams, thinking through ideas, giving them shape, validating them and bringing them to life. I think Yoast is responsible for at least 15 companies that are still in formation today out of that class has been running for, I think, a little under a decade. Some of them have gone on to do tremendous things. And, you know, one of them I count as Care Academy. Why did you decide to start a startup? Oh, I was, you know, I felt like I needed to do something before starting a startup. I knew of quite a few other founders who were either in the same grad school or across Harvard. And I felt the most unsure. I think I was the most insecure about the idea of being a founder. I definitely have been in opportunities to lead from the front. I think my classroom was the most pivotal experience of my life still to this day. But I was very unsure because I didn't feel like I had business background or for a number of reasons, I knew that what I wanted to create needed to exist, but wasn't sure that I was the person to do it. In testing out and trying to get validation, I had fortunately mentors who were really critical to saying, hey, you know, while you're testing things out, you need to go get a job, Mm. you know, practically and feed yourself. But the job that I ended up having, and shout out again, I'm going to give lots of shout outs Mm -hmm. to Daphne Germain at BPS. Uh, She was my manager at BPS. And And BPS is Boston Public Schools, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay, got it. Um, So I essentially got to work on a project that influenced Care Academy. Um, It was a blended model program for teachers of ESL students that launched sort of my understanding of how education technology worked. It was getting to work on my day job and then going home at night to use all of the things that I'd learned in that experience on what is now my job at Care Academy. When did you run into the problem that Care Academy solves? And when did you know that you were going to be the one to solve that? Yeah, it's the thing I couldn't stop thinking about. We are in the backyard of a number of companies that are oriented in caregiving. All of the founders of those companies had oriented as the recipients of carers, as the choosers of carers. But I knew my voice was coming from the person who had provided it. And I felt that that was missing this voice of someone who was thinking about, you know, how do I shape my career as a caregiver, as a person who, since I was 12, even while I was working full-time jobs, I'd always worked as a caregiver, either um, in elder care or in child care. That was my way of orienting the world because my aunts and in fact, an uncle, and then my mom uh, were all nurses and it had been either CNAs or some level of caregivers. I had a lot of situations I'd walk into with families uh, where I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And because I'm available, because I'm here, I'm going to try to do this, but I really want to know how to do this better. I was curious after that. I mean, you know, I'd go on interviews, the mother of the woman who's looking 
had, you know, late stage dementia. Oh, wow. And I hadn't worked with anyone who, who had late stage dementia. And on the, the other childcare end was working with a family who had two children with autism. I was reading about things. You know, I think the parents also felt, hey, if you're willing to give it a try, I'd love to help you understand that. But they were really my connection to understanding how to work with their family member. I imagine a world where that should not be the case. When you have to do your taxes, right, and it's a complex situation, you don't do that yourself. If you need to go into a courtroom, you know, you're not figuring out how to litigate. <laughs> you're calling on people who specialize in those things. And our policy decisions in this country around avoiding the professionalization of caregiving and realizing that as an actual profession has led to where we are now, where we need more caregivers, we realize the importance of caregivers, but we have not equipped caregivers to do work in a meaningful way. And, you know, that's for a variety of reasons. And there are a lot of different things that lead into that, but namely one of them is training. And that's really where Care Academy sees itself building value in this industry. Awesome. How did you go from there to recruiting a team around you? You know, how did you meet your co-founder? How did that go? Yeah, slowly. It was, uh, it was really interesting. So, you know, I think a lot of the earlier work was convincing myself, right, that there was anything worth building. I didn't go try to attempt to seriously raise money with a lot of the things that I've learned as a teacher and just getting things done, you know, uh, film videos and, you know, finance a lot of Care Academy from my own bank account and 401k account. Spent a lot of my own initial income. And, you know, keep in mind at that point, I was in my mid to late 20s, validating um, and trying out and experimenting with a way of both building and editing content and selling it and being the salesperson of that content. So things were very slow at first, because I was still working and I was, uh, you know, learning how to build it out and really learning how to build a business model. So the turning point came actually in 2015. So at that point, I'd been away from BPS for about a year. I had worked with one person unsuccessfully, um, but realized the value of having just another thought leader and another person to help execute and think through things. And everybody always laughs when I tell this story. I was on a site called Founder Dating. Mm -hmm. I've heard of that. Yeah, you've heard it. Great. I'm glad. Okay. <laughs> usually laughs and goes, what is that? It's a hard problem. It is. Finding a co-founder is tough. It's really tough. It's extremely tough. And it's, I mean, even harder than finding a mate, right? Because more people are open to that than starting a company. Yeah. So I typed in the words caregiving and one woman showed up. I didn't realize that profile had been a year and a half old. <laughs> so I wrote this person multiple messages, didn't hear a response and said, I really should find this person. Googled her, found her LinkedIn profile that also had been not usable for a year and a half. <laughs> Went further in and found her work email. So that either makes me sound persistent or like a complete stalker or both. And I completely appreciate that, everyone. <laughs> um, and I emailed Maduri, who's now my co-founder. We really hit it off. She's really affable, really hardworking, very smart. She rolled up her sleeves and first was an advisor. So we found her dated for eight months. Smart. Yeah, yeah. Before she became my co-founder. And uh, I'm really grateful for it. And how many employees do you have now? Without majority or I, we're at five people. Yeah. The percentage of women-led startups getting venture capital is very low. Yeah. And Arlen and Backstage Capital are working hard to move the needle there. Mm -hmm. Care Academy has two female co-founders. Has that influenced the culture there? 
I think it has. Absolutely. It's, you know, wonderful that you asked that because I think one of those things is how we perceive the value of someone who doesn't look like the Silicon Valley. I love that show, but I think that that has reinforced an archetype that is harmful actually to how we perceive a successful entrepreneur in a startup. So my co-founder is, I don't think she'll mind me sharing her age. She looks wonderful. She's 44 and I am 32. So we're a little older than sort of a 20 something. And she is married and has a daughter, a young daughter. I think I'm going to be at the life stage where, you know, I'm looking to make a life with someone and she is at that stage already. And so in terms of how we think about the startup, where we're cognizant of that, you know, how do we build in flexibility of different backgrounds and people at different life stages, right? Let alone people of different and diverse backgrounds into the culture of our company and the expectations around work. You know, how do we value people based on their talent? And the thing that's worked to our benefit, and I think a lot of startups founded by women, uh, specifically women who already have families, is an appreciation that begets them getting really great talent because they're not creating a policy or a culture that burns people out. And they're creating a culture that's respectful of where people are in their lives. And that begets an ability to bring in people who are very talented. And we're grateful for that, too, because we're starting to think about those things. And uh, we have a very diverse mix. We have mostly women in our in our startup and uh, starting to look at talent where folks do have, you know, young children or are older, and we can bring those folks in knowing that we are getting the absolute best. And we are a company that will make room for who they are and their obligations. So yeah, that is commendable. Thank you for doing that. Yeah. So you recently completed Techstars Boston. Yes. Which is really exciting. You have a net promoter score of 74, which as you mentioned in your Techstars demo day pitch, which I'll link to in the show notes, oh, wow. <laughs> is better than Apple's. <laughs> Amazing work there. Thank you. So tell us more about this growth. You know, what's going on now at Care Academy? Yeah. Yeah. In the last uh, year and a half, we've seen really remarkable growth in our team size and the number of caregivers that we're able to service. We started off in November of 2015, really December with 53 caregivers that we're working with in elder care and maybe a couple hundred folks in childcare. At this day, we're approaching nearly uh, 10,000 caregivers who are using our platform. And by the end of the year, our goal is 26,000 caregivers who are using our platform. Yeah. You know, and we know we have a long way to go in sort of growing into our goals and what we see is becoming. And we know that there's a market that's hungry for what we're providing and needs what we're providing as well. So we're really excited because we, you know, at this point can announce some really great partnerships that we've gotten over the last eight months, whether it's CareLinks and us having the ability to work with 150,000 of their caregivers to some of the franchisors that we're working with who have, you know, hundreds of locations all over the country. And so those are the opportunities that we're building into and that we're trying to make sure that we're able to grow into as well. And we're really excited about that. That is super exciting. Sounds like you're going to need more help. Are you currently hiring? We are. <laughs> <laughs> and where can everyone follow along or get involved with your mission at Care Academy? 
Absolutely. Uh, we would love any and all folks who are looking for their next position and are, you know, in the Boston area, preferably. We're hiring in sales and product and also in uh, folks who have really great technical chops as well as content providers and subject matter experts. And so you can find all that information on our angel list page. That's angel.co. And I'll link to your profile in the show notes. And likewise, if you are a home care agency or a caregiver looking for training, we are only one click away at careacademy.com. And if you want to just follow us and uh, get great content on caregiving and tips and learn from our experts, we are rolling out a couple series where we share some daily tips around caregiving. You can follow us on Twitter at Care Academy Co. So that's Care Academy Co. And on Facebook at uh, forward slash Care Academy. Excellent. Thank you for sharing your story today, Helen. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This was amazing, Brian. Thank you. You can find show notes at backstagecapital.com slash mission and values. Let us know what you think of the show. You can find me on Twitter at Brian Landers. That's B-R-Y-A-N. You can also email greenroom at backstagecapital.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes or share it with someone to help bring more attention to amazing founders like Helen. The theme music is by Shane Ensley from the Kneebody album Antihero, available at kneebody.com. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for next time on Mission and Values.